Welcome to episode 131 of the Fitness Devil podcast. Today's guest is our friend Jeb Johnston. He's a Stronger You coach. We'll tell you more about him in the actual episode. We talk about, he believes that coaches should be more comfortable exploring emotion with their clients, uh, more focused on mindfulness rather than just the technical aspects of here's what to do. We talk about Jeb's efforts to be more engaged in building his own brand and finding what you enjoy and what works for you. And we talk a lot about uh, using tribalism correctly, making sure that you find the right tribe that enhances your own ideas and identity versus being stuck in an ideological set of dogma that uh, makes you a conformist. Uh, hopefully you enjoy this episode. Shut up and sit down. Hey everyone, welcome back to the podcast. Um, we always, I do this every once in a while where we for, we say we forget to introduce ourselves, so we should periodically introduce and distinguish our voices if you don't already know. Uh, I'm Andrew Coates, and I'm Dean. Dean Guido. That was my intro. Guido. 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 Whatever one you pick, I guess. <laughs> and uh, yeah, we're, we're actually terrible about kind of identifying ourselves, and the pitter-patter you might have just heard is Penny, Dean's dog, running across the floor. But... Uh, our guests are always way more important, so that's kind of why we always forget to chat about ourselves for a second. Uh, so we brought our really good friend, you get this. Jeb Johnston, oh, back on. Go. People actually mess up on <laughs> Jeb's <laughs> name. There's a T in it, Johnston. Oh. When people say Johnson, I know you get. I know we make off. that joke every time, but like he was like leaning in, like fucking say my name. Do it. <laughs> no bad. Like I've actually messed up a couple of names. I, I got Josh Citron's name slight, slightly wrong when we first had him on. And uh, and uh, Donnie Singer messed that one up a little bit. So we actually do make these mistakes sometimes. Sometimes like pronunciations are just a little different. But uh, we actually had Jeb uh, on with a group of coaches. We had Nick and Derek Stanley, our friends, on uh, as a trio. And you've done Dean's uh, you know side project. But we actually want to bring you on solo because you actually got some of the smartest, coolest shit to say in our industry. So real quick, if you're not familiar with Jeb, uh, he's a stronger you coach. He's got let's see, I want to get this list right. Uh, you also, you're a trainer through your business, Brooklyn Strong. You've written for Muscle and Fitness and Men's Fitness Magazine. We were just talking off air, sadly, about the demise of Muscle and Fitness, how it's been sold. There's no more print magazine. Uh, you've written for other publications, and we just wanted to have you back, so uh, welcome back. Cool. Thanks, guys. Great to be. You got the longest intro ever, I think. Really? Is that yeah, a record? Andrew's usually like, pretty, like, the, the, he, he really likes you, obviously. <laughs> I <didn't> really like that. <laughs> well... Jeb is still one of the first people I met, or the earliest people I met at, like, I've mentioned numerous times on the air for anyone who's listened a long time, that I met a lot of the industry when I went to Kansas City in 2017 for the Kansas City Fitness Summit, and you were there, right, along with Derek, yeah. a lot of these other people, and uh, I've told this story before, I remember, like, seeing these two, like, ripped, jacked guys that I didn't meet right at the first day, and, like, Ashman, obviously, is, like, real big. You slimmed down now, and then you were there as well, right? And you two stood out amongst the crowd. And you think at a fitness conference, you see like a lot of people look like bodybuilders, and Jack Jab is shaking his head, no. Yeah. There were not yeah. many Jack people at that event. As we like well, that's really. that was my first entree into the fitness world, right? Because I mean, I was working, um, I was working for men's fitness doing stuff, but everything I was, everyone I was around was strongman competitors and powerlifters. So like that's what I thought the industry was. 
And I showed up there in Ashman. I was like, okay, like this, he's like a ex powerlifter, strong man. Like it made sense. And then I saw you and I was like, okay. And uh, I mean, and I was about 25 pounds lighter then than I am now. Too. <laughs> <So> <laughs> like that'll tell you, it, it really wasn't a, uh, it was a shock. Um, but I met a ton of cool people there. Like, that 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 I'm still friends with uh, today, and a lot of people I work with now. Well, it's it's, it's, it's funny because I thought the same thing when I went down. It's just like we're trashing everyone that's. <laughs> but it's it, it just like it's like it's if you're in that strong lifting powerlifting world, it's like you're so isolated. You don't know what you don't have a good idea of what fitness actually is. And then when you start working in in the space and working general population, you realize like you're actually the losers. <laughs> like you're the, you're the ones that like no one's like like if you actually want to get big and you want to get tattoos and lift heavy and be stupid like you're the minority and you have to kind of come to terms with that you got to be friends yeah, with like else. like you're thinking that it's normal to like pass out while doing <laughs> atlas stones wake up and then keep going to finish your set like that's stupid <laughs> But like that's if you're not like for me like completely for me until I like started becoming a trainer because I was a powerlifter before, I, I thought that was like what you did like not even the, like I, I've had seen people pass out and stuff but like that I wouldn't even have flinched seeing that no like like the first time you get a nosebleed lifting you're like finally yeah. <laughs> but like that's <laughs> fucked up like and, yeah. and I'll, I'll tell people like I blood bursted I like I burst my like eye blood vessels or I had a bleeding nose and they'll look at me like shocked and then I'm like what, what's wrong with that like that's cool and they're like no 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 how do you do that I'm like well you lift so heavy that the blood pressure pops I think all three of us and, and some of our other friends we mentioned Jay Ashman there's definitely others in the industry we found our way into this stuff kind of a, an old classical route but it's actually I think very different from what a lot of people up and coming are coming from we came in through bodybuilding or powerlifting or we're talking about reading muscle and fitness magazines and you know, being around uh, gym environments where there's, you know, pro or near pro bodybuilders. One of the guys that I used to hang out with and lift the same gym with was my old friend in Newfoundland, uh, Frank McGrath, right? Uh, oh, geez. Yeah. Really? So, yeah. He's a monster. He is. And you know what? Since he's been a 20-year-old guy, he's looked like an Olympia pro. Like, he's always been enormous and he's just gotten better and better. Yeah, Frank would be like over with, uh, you know, another bodybuilder buddy of his, me and my brother would be in there lifting and, you know, end up like parties you know drinking or whatever with frank and he's actually a really down-to-earth guy he's quiet he's he's a nice dude you know he's no ego to him or anything like that and he's always had those monster forearms but that was the environment that i grew up in in gyms and a lot of the community that we're we're encountering now are discovering fitness through a completely different avenue so sometimes i do feel like the outsider in that regard because a lot of the people who came from the world we came from they're showing up at uh, oh, the, the Olympia or the Arnold or whatever, and they're not going to these smaller fitness conferences where you get the evidence-based community, right? And sometimes that word gets thrown around like it's a dirty word, evidence-based, but you know it's still a smart community of people. And I also respect the fact that not every one of them, you know, for our earlier teasings, whatever, they're not all big jack people. Some of them yeah. are strong. Yeah, well, they'll, they'll be more athletically based. A lot of them too is like you know uh there's a lot and i've learned a lot you know like look at the guys that that coach at mike boyles you know they're not all big jack dudes but they're gonna create some pretty badass athletes yeah and it, like that's it's, it's funny you say that too and even with the powerlifting and strongman and like kind of doing like a synopsis of the industry but like 
those groups t generally don't play ball with the greater fitness community. And like, I think that's a mistake because like they still haven't gotten bigger. Like powerlifting isn't really that much bigger. Strongman is like a little bit bigger, but like they're not breaking into mainstream at all. And like it's it, and with any sort of speed. In and it. look at the people, look at the people who are understanding how to speak to either the broader fitness community or a greater audience. You look at a guy like Chris Duffin, who's really brilliant, right? He's a, he's a legendary powerlifter. Like that's, that's as big as you get with powerlifting in terms yeah. of like people who've broken in and like that's not but even now, like. But he's more respected in the evidence-based community, like the, the broader fitness industry. Or you get people like, it's a good example. Again, a Dan Green is probably doing, you know, at least a little bit better getting out that space. Obviously, the famous strongman like Hafter Bjornsson, so that's a whole different. Yeah. Why are these? But, but let's look too. Why are they even accepted at that level? It, let's be honest. The only reason anyone gives a shit about them is because the USAPL grew, and that's because of CrossFit. Yeah. It's why USAW is huge. It's not because the only reason is because people did CrossFit and they did their CrossFit and kind of good at CrossFit, and they're like, I want something else. Okay, I'm going to start powerlifting. Like, that's the reason it grew. It's because it is because of Gen Pop. And so these, when Gen Pop wanted to get better, they started looking at Brandon Lilly or started looking at Chad Wesley Smith's site. Juggernaut blew up. I mean, it, most of what we have right now, we really do have to credit CrossFit with. They, they built the Gen Pop fitness world. Well, that's what they figured out, I think. And, and like, I, I guess, like, going back to us going to a fitness summit is, like, we're, we're the problem. Because when we didn't know, we, we didn't, we don't know that there's other things out there and thus we don't break into it. And like, I think that that was a pretty eye-opening experience for me because I, I changed my whole path almost completely. I'm like, oh, yeah. I should probably like integrate a little bit because no one gives a fuck about my, my strength numbers. Like they think I look big, but that's about where it ends. <laughs> like, yeah. you street cred enough to like say, you know, how to teach strength, but like that's, that's yeah. where it ends. Sweet. Hello. <laughs> we all just went quiet at the same time, which we've been doing. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I just agree. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's kind of like, it's funny because like, that's what we had with, like, I think you even listened to Zoe Jill and like we had yeah, yeah, yeah. Cases, but it's just like, it, it's getting to the point where like we've talked to enough people where I don't want to say it's like an echo chamber, but <laughs> we're kind of like, yeah, like we're on the same page. Like, there's it's, it's also not being in a rush to speak over each other. We came up with some stuff. Uh, I sort of mine through your social media stuff and you're really prolific with writing a lot of poignant things. So there's a couple of things we want to talk about. I love this one. I love the story of David Ayers, this 42 year old emergency goalie oh, yeah. who, you know, 15 years ago had a kidney transplant and you mentioned him in the context of this article you wrote about never giving up and it got me thinking like, are actually people who aren't making the effort, you know, you have this population walk around, they're obese. Are they actually just straight up quitting on themselves, you know, on their nutrition and fitness? And, you know, is this a really big problem? What are your thoughts on this whole topic? Now, yeah, see, I, I think one of the biggest deficits we have in the fitness nutrition sphere is that we, we believe that when someone's not successful, it's because they don't want it enough, right? And, um, and I think from a coaching aspect, um, the coaches will say like, okay, well, yeah, I think they just don't want it. I'm giving them everything I, I can give them. Um, the interesting uh, uh, kind of real self-aware part of that is, is as a coach saying that uh, what we're doing is effectively doing that same thing, just because we don't have the tools to provide them with um, the, you know, the opportunity to grow and to move forward doesn't mean that they can't. 
Um, and so when it's people we think they're quitting or they just don't want it, they just don't have all the tools. And, and some coaches might just not have the tools to help them. And that's okay. There's going to be different things that help different people. Uh, you know, the big dive for me is, is obesity is not um, just people not knowing what to eat or uh, being lazy. I mean, I mean we, you know, we, we can go back to the epigenetics of it. We can go back to, um, you know, childhood trauma. We can go back. Now, things that you have to, you know, understand could be affecting this person. Now, does that mean they don't take accountability or respond? No, at the end of the day, your choices to get better or to stay the same are on you. But how do we get that person to move into action? Um, I know you guys just had Lisa on, Lisa Lewis on, you know, one of the, the big things that, that um, I work with her a lot, you know, uh, like uh, at least a couple times a month. And um, one of the things she's helped me with is this, this trans theoretical uh, theory of change. And one of the big parts of that is that only about 20% of change psychology happens in action. So 80% of it is contemplative. So when people aren't making that change, it doesn't mean they don't want to. They just haven't reached that action stage yet. So I think, um, you know, when we, we think that people are giving up on themselves, um, it's just that they haven't really reached that level of change. And I think it's on us to try and, try and gain as many tools in the toolbox to help them get there. She talked about it in like terms of like, we actually kind of talked about it a little bit that you, you described something we didn't really breeze over, but, or we, we breezed over, but it was like that push and pull between a coach and a client of like, they don't want to change the coach wants them to change really push them. And then they get pushed back. And it's just like this, this like tango, so to speak, but you can't engage further and further into this. I don't want to say argument, but this push and pull, if you don't have the tools to kind of get there, because like it's right. different per person so to speak and I think that like if you're young or like we're talking about these fitness summits but if you're like young and going into these spaces I don't know if you have the ability to kind of get all those tools yet until you've kind of had the experience because then you can't get that person to that point you know what I mean right yeah and reps you know we talk about reps all the time like how many clients have you worked with that, that have had this problem how many uh, have you personally had this problem? Um, you know, what have you seen successful? Some of it's just experience on a personal level, right? When in reps was kind of, we've talked about this a lot, but like one of the cool things with working stronger you is like, we, we get a lot of those reps. It's not to say that we're better at things, but it's just like, now we can look at a situation which I would have fucking freaked out like three <laughs> years ago. And it's just like, oh, it's, it's probably this thing and you can kind of work through it. But that's that whole idea of like with Lisa's thing is like, you even listening to her talk was like, I was saying her teaching psychology and doing all this stuff. I had a question and she answered it in like 10 seconds. Cause she, it's the same thing. She's had the reps with all the psychology stuff. And so there's a lot of people that can teach us these tools. It's just more about finding them. So you can kind of engage in this. I don't know what you, what'd she call it? Push. It's like, a, it's like a battle. <laughs> it's like a battle with them. And it's not a battle that you know, you're, you're fighting, but you're still kind of fighting it. Yeah, I mean, you know, it is, and like, or like you said, tango, like a dance. I mean, uh, you can either choose, you know, like I, I'll, I'll probably pull out a few jujitsu um, analogies here, but you know, one of the things in jujitsu we talk about is like someone can come at you with force, and you can either choose to try and meet them with a greater force, and you're going to stalemate, or you can let that kind of force come through you, allow them to make a mistake, and then capitalize on it. And, and granted, our clients aren't making mistakes per se, but 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 letting them push and saying like, okay, let me let you push. And then I can bring you into this space where you now feel comfortable and safe that we can actually try to make some change. 
or I can push back against you and we can just stay here and butt heads for the next 12 weeks. A lot of what Lisa was saying, and I'm hearing your thing too, is as coaches, we can often take on too much of the responsibility in the relationship and that takes it off the client's shoulders. At the end of the day, the client still has to be the one making decisions, has to be taking the actions. And some clients will want the coach to take the shit on because it sort of absolves the client of responsibility for the outcome. So it's important for coaches to, and again, I'm I'm uh, paraphrasing a lot of what Lisa was saying, not my own original thoughts. A lot of the time you do have to let the client work through it and be Mm -hmm. there and facilitate and help them. But I think a lot of more inexperienced coaches and even experienced ones get stuck in this thing where they feel like they have to have the answers. They have to be the one who figures it out and fixes it. A lot of the time you just have to provide the roadway and then let the client make the steps. Absolutely. Like I, I tell people, I don't have any answers. I don't have any answers. All I have is hopefully some better questions. Every single person has their own answers. And if we can ask them the right questions, hopefully they can start to come to those, those answers that they hold personally. Well, I know we keep bringing up Lisa, but it's like, um, and I actually saw a Mark Fisher video. We've had Mark Fisher on here before. And it was just, he basically breezed over motivational interviewing. So did, so did Lisa. But it's just like, don't ask people questions that are going to get yes or no. Like, it, it literally is almost yeah. that simple. It's like, let them fucking answer the question. Like, who, who cares what their answer is? It's still their truth, so to speak. And then you can, you can jujitsu the fuck out of it after that. Then- yeah, be comfortable being silent, too. Like, right, if you ask a question, let them answer it. Because they're going to talk. And if you work with people in person, especially, you know, um, I know sometimes these barriers are a little different when we talk nutrition versus training, but, but, you know, if you have, you know, that kind of relationship and people really want to change and you're having a personal conversation, shut the fuck up, Like, just shut up, be quiet, let them talk. They're going to tell you a lot more than they want to than if you're trying to answer everything. Silence is uncomfortable and people will fill it. And that's something that mm-hmm. we do it here all the time. <laughs> Podcast, absolutely. We have to always have to fight that, but more so with a coach and a client relationship. And during the sales process, this is very, very relevant to anyone who struggles with sales. Perfect. You sometimes just have to sit back and let it be a little uncomfortable until the other person starts sharing more. And you can talk yourself out of a sale as a trainer mm-hmm. pretty quickly by letting that person sort of off the hook. And then some trainers who are uncomfortable with sales, I know I'm pivoting here a bit, but then the trainers, it relieves the stress of the situation by giving the person an objection before they even present an objection, right? I mean, I think you're spot on. Motivational interviewing is sales. It's the exact, it is a sales basically questionnaire. Yeah, it's, it's like one of those, I don't know. I, we're big on it at Stronger You in a sense, but I think like that is the key to a lot of, I guess the answers that we are trying to seek, so to speak, because we're trying to get from point A to point B. And it's, it's like, if you don't learn that process, you kind of like, we're talking about tools in the toolbox. Like that's probably one of the easiest tools to have in there. And you don't even have to be good at coaching if you can ask questions. Like that is coaching this, so, so to speak, but there's people who just know how to ask the right questions and they just end up being good at stuff. Yeah, yeah, because like I said, those they have the answers in them. Yeah, if you can ask the questions, they're going to come to it. Um, let's. Oh yeah. So Andrew basically pulls things from like your Instagram and Facebook, but like I know you you've kind of been on this path of like writing daily, so you can get some of your stuff out. So that's where kind of a lot of these questions are coming from. But you've been frequently talking about fitness professionals needing to be more comfortable talking about 
emotion, especially when it comes to food. So why is this important? I guess for coaches or for anyone really. You know, I mean, this is just through my own practice. Like I've learned that, um, that, that segmenting emotionality from, um, uh, you know, kind of cognitive, uh, oversight is, is a mistake. Um, you know, we talk about nutrition sphere, right? There's been a, a variety of cognitive, uh, um, attacks towards nutrition, uh, every single diet book, um, you know, everything about from calorie counting. I mean, even if we're talking about ad libitum diets, like keto or vegan or gluten-free, where people are trying to lose weight, um, with this, you know, kind of mechanistic approach, they work. They all work. They all work well. Uh, and yet people keep gaining weight back, right? Because what we're not addressing is we're not addressing the underlying behaviors. Um, and whether it's in training, whether it's in nutrition, uh, if we avoid talking about emotions uh, around especially food, we're going to end up in the same space. Uh, and, and that doesn't mean we're a psychologist. It doesn't mean we're trying, you know, we're, we're trying to get a, cause I'll tell you what people say, Oh, stay in your lane. I'm like, fine, you stay in your lane and continue to be ineffective at your job. And I will actually just make, you know, that, that one lane country road that you're living on. I'm going to have it make a six way super, you know, super highway and, and actually be able to, to try and change things. Um, so by incorporating some, some talk about emotions, we can use skills. Uh, I'm big on mindfulness. Um, that's where a lot of my approach comes from now because it is not trying to be a psychotherapist. It's not trying to be a, a, a counselor. What it is is trying to, to help people have some skills that'll help them to regulate some of their own emotional um, uh, responses to things. And, um, you know, as simple as, as, as just acceptance or awareness, like these small tools that anyone can use, that anyone can teach, uh, will make huge headways uh, for clients long term. Um, well, you know, mean, and, and it, I was going to say, like, we we we're going to Costa Rica together, and we have to present. And like, I know we kind of went over our projects, and that that is essentially your project. And I like when I went over it, it was interesting the stats on it because, like, with the studies, like as much as it wasn't like super effective, it still was like just them being a little bit more mindful or accepting like they lost weight and it stayed off more long. And even yeah. though it's a small percentage, like four or 5%, like that's, that's not that fucking bad for something where they didn't even do anything. They just like learned yeah. how to ask right. questions. And, and a lot of times like something like acceptance-based uh, therapy, like you're not even asking them to change anything. You're yeah. asking them literally just to accept things the way they are. And yet they saw an effect. Um, and and, and the, yeah, and the interventions, the studies that that, that I bring up uh, in the Costa Rica talk, they're not; these are not like crazy interventions, dietary. Like, if they give them a dietary thing, it'll be like a talk, like, "Hey, eat between this many calories and this many calories. Uh, like, eat less than fifteen hundred calories, eat less than twenty five percent of your calories from fat, and then try to increase your daily activity from ten minutes a day to forty minutes a day." And in that study, I, I think that um, they, people saw an, a weight loss of like twelve kilos. Yeah. over this 26 week period, which they, they weren't counting macros or I mean, they're supposed to count calories, but we know how people, how good people are at that regularly. Well. <laughs> yeah. And, and basically all they did is use some mindfulness techniques and it's like, holy shit. And they kept it off at the three month and six month recalls. Um, I think that was, was the insane. biggest, 
that was the biggest eye opener. And, and the, the reason why this is relevant too is because you're gonna be talking in um, in Spokane on like th these very things. I, I don't know how much of it you're gonna go into it, but like the thing I that stood out to me was these long term things. Like a lot of the problems, like you said, these diets fucking work. People lose weight, but we know sure as shit. And anyone listening that's had clients, like a lot of it gets gained back if there's like no other intervention. And these mindfulness yeah. interventions weren't even like crazy ones. Like, I think that one, they like did some like psychology and like they, it was like two hour interviews, but like, like they didn't do anything food wise, really. They just no. talked about their feelings and, and, and then it, it was lasting, which the lasting thing is good. Cause even if you lose whatever, 20%, but you gain it all back, that 5% is looking pretty good long-term. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and, and especially when we look at, you know, we look at like the look ahead study, which is the one that showed the, I think the greatest promise for long-term weight loss intervention. And that was a, that's like a 20 year study. It was huge. Um, but I think in the, in the look ahead study, we still saw that, that most people regained the weight or at least uh, people that were keeping it off. I think, I think those people, only about 20% of the people in those studies, um, kept the weight off and, and the, the weight loss had to be, you know, greater than 10%. So they maybe kept like 10%. Most, most of the longer term studies with regular diet interventions, people only keep off about 5% of, of the weight, the original weight they, they lost. So if they, you know, lost 10 to 15%, which most only lost about 8%, they, they only, um, they, they kept off like somewhere between three and 5% in most of these studies, which if you're 200 pounds, that's, you know, 10 pounds. Yeah. Which is great, but how, or maybe five pounds, you know, that's great, but how much does that really help you, you know, long-term? Do you think, and this is where, like, this would be, like, your experience as a coach um, and for people listening, but, like, so, like, we know the diet stuff works, but then the mindfulness stuff works. How, like, and they didn't really study this too much, but how much do you think that the mindfulness or just the psychology stuff will help keep the big, because we know diets can have a bigger gain than, or loss than 5%. Do you think it can solidify some of the diet stuff so that it's, it's more of a catalyst as opposed to a this or that sort of thing? That, that, that's, that's my supposition. Um, again, because you have to kind of, re it looks like the research on these things are, are kind of done in isolation because yeah. all of a sudden, if you add these variables in, right, you've got this, this mindfulness aspect, you've got this, um, uh, dietary intervention, then you would have to have, um, you know, control group, and then you'd have to have, uh, mindfulness plus dietary intervention. That's a lot of moving parts. Um, but I do think that the mindfulness use as a behavioral change will, help keep weight loss or, or keep weight uh off right or at least create behaviors that have a higher likelihood of doing so it, i'm gonna i'm gonna be honest <clears throat> a lot of that sounded blurry to me <laughs> oh completely and i'm That's gonna apologize to the listener here because i think a lot of that stuff wasn't clear so i want to bring it back i think that the bottom line is nutrition is a lot more than the technical science of nutrition, right? We, we started this question by talking about emotion. There are a lot of drivers underlying why people eat what they eat. So it's important to address what are the underlying drivers instead of just getting hung up on the science of nutrition. So for coaches, if all you're doing is telling people, well, macros, I wrote this recently, macro ratios are largely irrelevant and my fitness poly is the shittiest one Cal like. calories <laughs> macro ratios are more the end result of your calculation of getting the right calories the right amount of protein and then however you put in your carbs and fats and carbs and fats are pretty interchangeable for the most part so um different people 
different goals, you'd have slight differences. <clears throat> Excuse me. And even I'm now getting on tra off track a little bit. But you can master the science, but if you do not get to the core of why someone has been overeating in the first place, all the science in the world won't matter, right? You will have to, for the, for the coaches listening, you have to help that person understand what are the emotional underpinnings of why they are overeating food. And Jeff, you keep saying mindfulness. I think mindfulness, it sounds like just keeping this stuff top of mind. Yeah, you, you summarized it way faster than we ramble. <laughs> yeah, sorry, but that, that sounded like a giant rambling, incoherent mess. And I wanted to bring it back into something that was actionable because at the end of the day, we want people to be successful and lose weight, right? Yeah. The problem here, though, we run into is because by trying to bring it into something simple to sell, it sounds simple, but it's not. The problem is, is that it is a giant rambling incoherent mess and that's what you have to understand if you actually want to work on this stuff well, like making it yeah. simple is is making it not real right and that's part of the problem well i think that like, um, like we talk about simple and like like you you alluded to it like yeah like calories in calories out like we fucking hear that all the fucking time it's just like okay that's fine like go do calories in calories out and go work with 100 people and like see if that works and that's what you're saying is like it's it's basically a big fucking mess and unless you kind of like dive into the mess and see what's what a lot of the science of the mechanisms you just realize like in isolation they none of them fucking work like you can have your perfect macros on my fitness pal and it can estimate your fucking macros and like they say that works and like why aren't people losing weight long term it's just like because there's a lot of fucking shit going on and you gotta figure out which lever to pull it could be exercise it could be diet it could be mindfulness or top of mind it could be that they just need to walk more. Um, but if you if you don't... And most likely, it's all of these things. Yeah. Or like in the... You deal with like a lot of people in fitness and like you don't necessarily do all their nutrition, but you've had people that have lost massive amounts of weight just because you talk to them about shit and train them and they worked out and they... they so, something weird. So alluding to that, and I thought about this the other day and I've known it for a while. The two single greatest weight loss successes I have worked with uh, they stand out. There's a young man who yeah, lost 100 pounds before I even started working with him. Which that dude's crazy. He is rare. He's not normal people. He's hyper adherent to things. He went and did a lot of research and he simply put a bunch of rules in place and did it well. Showcasing someone like that, and I'm always very careful how I say it, he is the outlier. He is not the normal person. He has capabilities most people don't have. And it's not as simple as just, okay, here are the rules. Here are my numbers. I'm going to go adhere to it. That works for one in a hundred. He's the one in a hundred. Yeah. And those are all my Instagram like transformation stories are those one in a hundred people. Like <laughs> they're easy. Those are my easiest clients. The people right. who lost a hundred pounds are my easy ones. And we end up, and I'm always trying to be careful with this, but we end up as coaches showing them off. But at the end of the day, <clears throat> they are not typical. The results are not typical. Of course not. So for everybody else who's struggling, again, it's, it's just really important. This whole conversation is, to get into the muck of what's going on in their emotions or brain. We certainly talk a lot about habits as an industry. And then that's the essence of this stuff is, is rebuilding habits. But what is the stuff underpinning the habits? What is the emotional stuff? What is the, you mentioned traumas, childhood traumas. If we can actually help people bring that stuff at least to the surface to a certain extent, maybe we can make some long-term It's changes. something that you've done well. Like I said, you've had some, you don't even really do nutrition stuff and you've had successes in it. And I think a lot of it comes from being a coach where you allow people an environment where they can come out. Cause like, like you said, some of your clients are like not, not necessarily your best friends, but like 
you're very friendly to them and you guys talk and things, yeah. yeah, things come out and then by that, that is mindfulness to, so to speak, like things are getting out into the world and then you're, then you can kind of isolate them and be like, Oh yeah, that's kind of weird. Maybe you should change that. But you don't get so what? Yeah. What's the most important aspect of coaching? Really? It's the relationship. Like, like you can see results with people by having a great relationship because they feel open with you. Right. So that right there is, is now developed. Now, you know, obviously the, the, the different, there's going to be different people, but, but if you can develop a relationship with somebody where they feel open and, and feel willing to share, you don't have, we don't have to be their psychologist. We just have to be someone that's willing to listen. And I think that's, that's the, the key right there is that you're seeing success because people trust you and they feel uh, open to, to, to share with you. And one of my favorite things is Dan, my buddy, Dan Trank, who runs uh, a gym here in, in New York, the fort. Uh, I remember him talking. He's like, yeah, he's like a lot of my nutrition, like my clients who I give them a nutrition plan. It's like, yeah, track your food. He's like, write down what you eat. And he's like, they lose weight. And he's like, and then I'll say, how's it going? And they're like, oh, I'm losing weight. Cool. Keep tracking your food. <laughs> he's like, I don't even give them, give them targets, but it's just because they feel open and honest and they, they change. And the tracking the food, I'm going to paraphrase what you implied there. Tracking the food is actually less about tracking the food and more about top of mind mindfulness. Yeah. They are thinking about and being aware of what they're doing with their food. It's not necessarily about the numbers. It's the fact that anyone listening, when, when you've tracked your food, what did you invariably do? You thought a little bit, well, I don't want to eat that because if I have to put that in there, it, it's getting people off of this just automatic eat what's in front of them mode that a lot of people existed. If you can break them away from that and just get them thinking a little bit about the fact, wait a second, I have to consciously think about how many calories I'm eating and the quality of food I'm eating. It probably doesn't even matter how you go about that. As long as you can get clients thinking about that, you find a system that works for them. We call them like, we Jim and I laugh this all the time, but like the mental hoops we'll go through to like not do the thing that they know is right. Like, and I do it. Like when I was trying to gain weight, sure. it's just like, why wasn't I like eating this food or like not like not eating at this period of time? It's because I was like trying to figure out a way not to do the thing I wanted to do. And like, I'm even victim to it. So, and I know this shit. So it's yeah. just like, like, and that's top of the mind is like, once you kind of put it out into the world, it's like, oh shit, like you, you can, people can identify bad and good in their own model, but they, they can't if they don't say it out loud. It's super weird. All right. I want to pivot here because I want to, I know we just keep going in circles on this one, uh, but I always love this kind of stuff, Jeb. And you recently launched a new website, foodonthemind.com. Um, and you've been a lot more prolific with putting your work on display on social media on top of that. Um, though you're very deeply respected in our industry, you haven't really previously focused on building a personal brand in the way that a lot of our, you know, friends and peers and, and, that, and then certainly that what we call the big names in the industry have established. So has your philosophy and approach to this changed with your more recent efforts? And what are your thoughts on the pros and the cons of investing the effort in gaining a larger brand and following? Uh well, it's, it's kind of funny you say it because um, I would say over the past five years, I've spent a ton of time trying to create a brand and trying to create a following and uh, just hated it and fell flat on my face doing it, right? Like I just kept trying to do all these things that other people told me to do. Um, this recent kind of development, uh, which led to the website and my email list and things that I'm doing now, was all it was was basically like I hated blogging because I hated long form blogs because it got so overwhelming and I would have articles to write for magazines or whatever. So I was like, you know what? I just gonna, I'm just going to write every day. Instagram 
limits the amount of characters I can use. So I have to write kind of small, like quick little tidbits of things. Um, and the things I like and the things I'm interested in are, uh, you know, basically nutrition, getting big and um, mindset stuff. So I just write every day. It's my writing exercise. Every morning I wake up, I have to do um, my first hour of the day is, is with my coffee. I have to write and it has to be a short thing. It has to fit on Instagram. Um, and that kind of developed the branding thing. And then, uh, you know, uh, our friend Carolyn McDonald, um, she had a couple of weeks between work and I was like, hey, so you've got some downtime uh, between jobs. You want to help me out with some, some ideas, thinking that she was just going to like tell me a couple things to do. And her being her, she just took it and was like, I'm building you a website. Um, I'm building your brand. I'm building all this stuff. And so I have to, I have to credit her with a lot of, of what it, the reason it looks the way it does. Because uh, she's, I mean, she really took it and ran with it. I was going to um, her out absolutely. Uh, like for, for yeah, no, I mean, she crushed it, dude. Like every time someone's like, wow, this looks amazing. I'm like, not me. I had nothing to do with it. Go back and listen to Carolyn McDonald's episode. So uh, Carolyn has pivoted the industry. She is now working for Renaissance Periodization with Mike, Mike Isertel's team. Loving life. Really, really happy. Like way better than what where she was before. Uh, that's all I'm going to say about that. And at the same time, she's done really good with her own personal brand. And she's behind the scenes trying to help a ton of people with a lot of stuff. She's a very giving personality. So she's someone who... You, I, I think you guys would benefit from knowing and, and encountering in, in our space and following well, the stuff she's doing. The funniest thing with Jeff is be like, oh yeah, I'm getting Carolyn to help me out. And then he's like, dude, look at this fucking site. I was like, <laughs> it's like, not that it's not you, but it's just like, you weren't expecting, you're like, oh shit, I guess I'm doing this thing. I'm not <laughs> good at stuff like that. Like, it's not, like, she made it amazing. Exactly, took everything I thought in my head and, and made it a reality. It was amazing. Now you're yeah, so it's, it was it was just my daily writing practice, and that has kind of been developing brand. It's just something I force myself to do, anyways. And now it's my little daily writing goes out to my email list, goes up on my on my blog every day, and and then uh, I throw it up on Instagram the next day. Um, you know, which is the the David Ayers thing. Like, why did I write about that? It's just because I was watching the news. And it's a fucking amazing story, and I was like, hey, like this is just a this is just something that makes me feel good. Like, let's share something about it. So let's go back to David Ayers for a sec. Yeah, 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 we'll talk about hockey. <laughs> we'll, 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 we'll spend too much time here. But I just want to say that one of my favorite things in the universe is when it happens once every two to five years where an emergency goalie gets into an NHL game. So anyone who yeah. doesn't understand this, I'll explain it quickly. Each team has two goalies on their roster. You know, a defenseman or a forward don't, can't just lace up goalie equipment because that's going to go horribly wrong. So Every home stadium has one emergency goalie. It's some local guy who plays a little bit of rec hockey. They have him sitting in the stands. And if both one team has both goalies get injured in the yeah. same game, they call on this emergency goalie. The last one was Scott Foster a couple of years ago in Chicago. He shut out. And, yeah, he, he didn't even allow any goals. So this time, this David Ayers guy, 42 years old, kidney transplant 15 years ago, ends up getting called in. He's actually part of the Toronto Maple Leafs organization. Uh, their junior team, and he does. He's a practice goalie for the Leafs. Meanwhile, he gets called into the game for Carolina, the visiting team. Let's him two goals right away. You see Rod Brindamore, the coach, on the bench, like going, "Oh my god, this is terrible." Then he settles down. His team fights for every puck for the next period, allows no more goals, and he actually gets his first NHL win, first emergency goalie to ever get a win. And it, it's just a really cool emotional story for this everyday dude. But the fucked up thing is that this is where society's messed up. Is like people were actually like mad. Like the league, so the league, the league got mad because they're like, this is a joke. 
because Toronto's one of the best teams in the league, and they got like they lost, and they're like, and it makes it look like oh, anyone can just play goalie. But then they, they downplayed, <laughs> but they downplayed the fact that like he he's an actual goalie. He's the least practiced goalie. Like he, he he's not like a bad goalie. And so it makes it – they were, like, mad because it makes it look like anyone can play in the NHL. It's like, I don't think anyone, like, got bad out of it. Like, they just felt good. Yeah. I mean, it was – because I didn't know anything about this, like, backup goalie thing. I don't know dick about hockey. So I'm, like, watching them, like, what is going on? But just – I don't know. It's just, like it, – this is, like, a Disney story. Like, this is some yeah. shit that they make a Disney movie out of, you know? It's awesome. It, it's one of those things where it's, like it's, – it's, like, one of those game shows. It's, like, oh, you get to go play in a professional hockey game. And, like – And then right. you, hope, you hope they win, and then the dude wins. And it's – but, like, hockey's weird. But, like, it makes sense because you can't – and they don't even pay these guys. It's like they, 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 get, they get some nice perks. They like, get 500 bucks in a jersey. They get to attend like, games for free. It's actually a sweet Yeah, I would be like, I want my $10,000 paycheck. That these other yeah, right? But how cool, though, is that he, he played for the opposing team. They won, and everyone in the stadium was cheering for him. Like, even though their team lost. Like, that's, it's just, I don't know. It's so good. A laughing stock of the NHL because they got beaten by a 42-year-old Zamboni <laughs> driver. But it also exposes, like, we could go spend an episode on, like, culture. Carolina Hurricanes kind of have a legendary culture for good. And the Leafs, you got a bunch of young punk players who've been holding up for max contracts. And I don't begrudge them. And then Austin Matthews is, like, like showing his ass at some female security guard in Arizona in the offseason, being a complete drunken dickhead, you know, just the worst of entitled, you know, young athlete behavior. And quite frankly, I'm thrilled at the outcome, right? I I am absolutely thrilled at this, this everyday dude. And it's like everybody loves this because it's this everyday person's dream to play in the NHL if that's your sport. And the NHL <clears throat> is actually missing a marketing opportunity by not embracing this even more. Because you're right, they're actually talking now about... The league was, like, the league is trying to shut it down now. Yeah, which is ludicrous, right? Because it's actually one of the coolest stories of the year. But we're again off topic. I want to bring it back to (laughs) Jen's brand. And something that you said about, like, doing what you were told to do and hating it. So I think a lot of trainers out there right now are are struggling to build brands. They don't know what to do. They're being told, oh, you have to do this. You have to do fucking click funnel bullshit. Or God only knows what else. Or they have to post and do stupid shit on Instagram, what would you say to the person who's actually struggling with the cliche things that they're told that they're supposed to do? God, I mean, I don't know. Like, first of all, I think like trying to build a brand before you know what the fuck you're doing is kind of stupid. Um, you know, I think people want, I mean, like, let's, let's talk about my niche, you know? I mean, like I joke about this now all the time. Anybody who looks at me is never going to assume that, that my niche is like, perimenopausal women who deal with emotional eating like really like that's what I my down to, but that's who I enjoy working with that's how I've kind of developed and and most of my posts are geared toward that clientele um but not because I chose it because it really did it, it became what fulfills me and who I enjoy working with um but if you don't have the reps if you don't have the experience you're you're not you're not gonna figure that out Right. And so I think, you know, focus on doing what you do well, showcase your work, put your stuff out there and then let kind of, you know, the brand niche down. I mean, I know like in a lot of these things, everyone says you got to find your niche. Like, no, you got to go work with as many people as possible so you can find out what you actually like to do. And they're good at because like you can say like, yeah, what you're good at. Like my, is it niche or niche? 
I'm sure it's both. I, I think, think it's niche. both. Maybe that's a Canadian Yeah, niche. I, I've said either way, yeah. But niche. but either way, like, if I were to, like, say my niche of what I want to do, it'd be like, yeah, I want to work <laughs> with, like, athletes. <laughs> that's everyone's niche when they're, like, where they want to work with, like, bodybuilders. Like, yeah, like, that's not going to be your niche, sorry. Like, once you actually get into I, the real world. Dude, I've worked with a few pro athletes, and honestly, it's not very rewarding because they do what they want to – they're going to do their thing. And then 12 weeks is up and they're like, peace out. And they're not going to talk about how great a job you did because they're promoting themselves. Unless you get a, someone like a, a, a lightning strike, like Jake Arietta with Sam Pogue training his buddy, Jake Arietta, right? Yeah. Or Ben yeah. working with some of the people that he's working with. Yeah, Ben's actually yeah, but, I mean, but, I can, I, but I've known Ben for years. I can tell you there's a whole lot of people he's never talked about that are super friggin' famous and like – you know, like he's a guy who, like, trust me, he's been working with super famous people long before anyone knew who he was outside of T Nation. Like, that was it. Like, T Nation, people just thought he was a trainer, like, doing whatever. Like, he's been working with a lot of super famous people for a long time. And one of the best people to follow and, and learn from in the industry. And he's funny, too. So go follow Ben Bruno. He's super funny. It's actually like, it's, it's he actually like, like, I don't even know if he crosses the line, but like, if you don't know who he is and you look at him, like, what's her name, Carol? He's like, uh, what's the comedian that he trains? Oh, um, Chelsea Handler. Chelsea, Chelsea Handler. He, he says like the most obscure shit. And like, if, if you didn't know that relationship, you'd look and like, man, this guy, is he actually saying Well, the crap, the crap that he does to Phil Rosenthal is fucking hysterical. <laughs> what if he like move his boxes? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's funny, but he's super dry. Like, it, that's some funny shit. But again, that's that develops crap. like that's yeah. that's who you are you are you don't tr- you can't try to be like that no, i was gonna say like yeah like he just is doing that because that's how he is it just like, yeah. like you can't be that person unless you're that person because like try to be dry dark humor and you're not like it's, it's so easy to read through it's like oh this person's trying yeah. way too hard in my experience yeah. like a few months ago <clears throat> just before the year started i said okay i'm gonna you know put a bit more effort into just being really consistent on instagram playing around some stuff but i've actually figured out a formula and all of a sudden now i'm seeing the instagram following spike rather rapidly t nation sharing memes uh with my name on them and tagging me doesn't hurt either because that's uh usually drives stuff to my instagram but finding something that you actually enjoy you find fun versus like really being one more job and chore in the industries think about it most of the people listening here i think actually genuinely love coaching so the hours you put into coaching, I know you guys, you guys love doing your nutrition coaching for strong for you. Imagine if you hated that. It's like, oh my God, I'm going to do this crap again today. It yeah. Quit pretty quickly. So I think you want to approach your social media, your brand building rather similarly. Find something that you enjoy because if you're forcing it, it's probably not going to work. So, and I found some enjoyment in just some of the stuff that I've been creating for Instagram. And honestly, it's been doing amazing. But it was the stuff that was yeah. doing well when you first started anyways, like the stuff that I knew you for. And like, not that you got away from it, but like you, there's so much shit going on. And then you kind of went back to it and it's like, oh, like that's Andrew for sure. Like, and it looks like it's easy. And then you're just, the volume of stuff that's coming out is great. Same thing with you, Jeb, is that like the volume of stuff is coming out like at a way bigger pace than before, probably because you're just doing it and it's easy, easier. Yeah, and I just do it every day. But like, look at Andrew, like, like your, your content is like, why is it good? It's because it, it works. It makes sense. Like it's the same stuff you're writing articles for Teen Nation at. You're just doing it. it you know, it's not as involved as a Teen Nation article might be, but, but it's, yeah, it's this, this, yeah, but it's the stuff you're, you're doing anyways. And you're like, okay, here's what I'm doing. And people identify with it. You know, if you were trying to do gymnastics shit, everyone would be like, what the fuck is this guy doing? But yet some 140 pound kid is going to talk to you about hypertrophy on his page. And you're like, Get the fuck out of here. Like, I don't want to hear that. 
I actually say that like daily. It's not that I try to troll through Instagram. It's just like, you're going to talk about this, bud? Like, I don't know if you represent this demographic, but like, do you? I mean, it's like, yeah. it's the same thing. Like, maybe they like it, you know, whatever. It's just, I don't know. Like, Andrew can talk about stuff. You're big. Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't know. Like, like seriously, like, that, that's street cred. Bottom line, if Andrew wants to tell me how to get big, like, guess what? I'm going to listen. I don't give a shit. Like, you know, someone will be like, well, it might not be evidence based. I'll be like, well, evidence, the guy's fucking huge. <laughs> the, other, the other thing about this whole evidence based thing, too, is, I mean, I, I'm not someone who will bro out and use the argument, oh, you know, like just because yeah. a bodybuilder does something. Like, I like Mike Gistel put up a post yesterday or something he shared, and he's like kind of cutting down this bullshit about like cheating and how like women always do everything strict and, and men, you know, their training form will often suck and they're swinging around weight that they can't control is too heavy. And it's ego lifting, right? And Mike's a big proponent of strict form, and so am I, right? I, I think this shit yeah. is complete fucking nonsense. And it, just because you see, one of my big pet peeves is old videos of Branch Warren swinging weights. Oh, God. Like more momentum. <laughs> oh, yeah. His hand is over his face, like total face palm. Now, Branch looks great. There's a lot of, this is survivorship bias too. There's a lot of other reasons why he was a big successful bodybuilder. He also was hurt constantly. He would rip muscles off bones all the time. And you don't think that maybe that didn't have something to do with the fact that he's swinging weights around with the worst form I've ever seen. And just training like an asshole and, and dropping barbells in gyms. Like, first of all, that's, that's such a shitty example for etiquette to begin with, but that wasn't the key to his success. So all these guys who are swinging around weight, but they are no fucking weight in control of guys, like your ego is out of control in the gym. And anyone who's a serious lifter is looking over at you going laughing inside there and going, that's a joke. So it's a big pet peeve of mine. It's not evidence-based either. Like, you can't for evidence-based ego but lifting. I guess back to the point of yeah. this whole thing, there's still a ton of stuff that in the traditional bodybuilding realm is really valid because it's worked for a ton of people for a yeah, long exactly. time. And if someone turns around and says to me, like, I know Christian Thibodeau kind of put out an article recently, you know, about not needing to train arms. Christian's a brilliant dude. But Christian also has jacked arms and has trained a lot of arms directly. Yeah. If you want big arms, if you want big biceps and big triceps, basic compounds like bench pressing and rows aren't going to do it. Okay. How many power lifters do we see walking around who've got big chests, you know, powerful backs, big legs, and they've got small arms, relatively speaking. And there are a lot of them. Why? Because they're not doing the volume of direct arm training. If you want to have big arms, do arm training supersets, put that shit in on their own day or mix it in with the other stuff and get the volume of your bicep and tricep training up. I don't need a study to prove to me that that works really fucking well, right? We know it works through studies because we know training volume applied to a muscle with intensity to near failure within a couple of reps of failure. That shit builds muscle. If you feed it with nutrition, you sleep well. That stuff's all researched. So guess what? I don't need a study to say to me, you know, 12 sets of curls and 12 sets of tricep extensions will help your arms get bigger because we know it's evidence-based. We also know it's practiced by a legion of people who train for years it's just like the pump stuff chasing the pump i don't care what anyone says but like generally like if you're in the right intensity within the, that volume and stuff like then you get pump well, and so like this, it's not that it's always indicative good, of like good, good example good example I'll, I'll explain pump okay so there's an argument over whether or not pump explain is, pumping. you know as a causal driver of uh you know muscle growth okay well metabolic stress probably has a relationship there's other things mechanical tension you know the volume of training all that sort of stuff but the pump is also a byproduct of the things that create muscle growth. So whether or not it is the cause or a 
side effect of it, it has a relationship. If you're doing the things that cause a pump, chances are you're doing the right things to grow your muscles, and it doesn't fucking matter if the pump is the cause. Right. The it, it, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, there's, I mean, there, there's, there's most definitely a, a, an advantage to metabolite training. I mean, it's, is it the primary driver of growth? Probably not. It's probably going to no. be, you know, mechanical tension, but, but it's there. And bottom line is, I don't give a shit because I like the way it feels and I like the way it looks. Actually, like, like not, I'm new to this world, so to speak, because I didn't really get it as much. But, like, I remember the first time I trained arms at, like, whatever, 15, and my arms felt like they're going to rip off. Like, I haven't really felt that until recently, until I started doing bodybuilding training. I'm like, oh, yeah, like, I, I get it now. Even if it, like, does it, it's not the main driver. It's like, I kind of know I'm working out hard enough because, like, my, I can't walk or I can't, like, my when you have When you have a legit bicep boner, it, like, it nothing good. beats that man like and that that has to like even if the mechanism isn't hyper like me feeling better about it like i think that that's helpful in fact, because i'm more likely to do arms more because like oh it feels good so the fact that you arms. did 12 sets of curls across three exercises and you got a pump from it yeah the fact that you did the work is why the biceps will grow yeah right yeah and you're gonna do the work yeah. and it feels good and the pump feels good. Like, I know this is, like, super not evidence-based, but it's, like, fuck. Like, but, like but, tell, tell. But it totally is. Yeah, but, like, like, like look, look at me versus look at you. Like, I'm going to do what I'm doing. And it, it, most of it's scientific, and the rest of it's, like, I don't know. I think it works. Like, it's mostly true to me. I, yeah, I mean, but I think it is scientific, right? I think it, I mean, I think, again, what, and, and, and this is what we're delving into so deeply right now in this, this uh, research stuff is, is uh, science isn't there to, to prove what's right. Science is there to knock down pins. Yeah. And, and, you know, when there's a lot of evidence, some we can go through and be like, okay, well, this actually doesn't work. This actually doesn't work. Uh, but we can't prove that any of this stuff, you know, works. We could just get closer to what uh, uh, relative truth is. Um, okay, we're actually, this is actually the sweetest because we've gone off tangent. Okay, <laughs> let's talk about, so like last <laughs> post that Jeb's been writing about, so, Tribalism. So another recent post talks about tribalism, not necessarily being a problem as is often blamed, but that we need to find a tribe that supports you and your values, not one that promotes their own agenda. Would you elaborate on this? And this kind of goes back to some of your social media stuff. So, you know, I kind of did two posts on this because the first one was, is like kind of beware of your tribe. Um, you know, are you are you a dogmatic follower? Are you, you know, just kind of doing things for the sake of them? And then the second post was that it's not really the tribe that's the problem. It's it's how we, you know, kind of follow it. So, so to me, tribalism is both a, a huge advantage because it, it gives us something to care about. It gives us something to, to that matters. Um, but at the same time, it can also be our detriment because it can also be something that we... Um, that we we focus on as the only thing you know and, and the reason i bring that up is because you know we see ourselves fall into dietary tribes where it's we're keto or we're carb uh you know high carb or we're vegan and yeah that's that's great in in theory um except for when you ignore the benefits of everything else uh, because you it fits your tribe the advantage of it being of tribalism is is that it gives us a place to belong it gives us uh kind of that evolutionary uh, um, 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 uh, strength of, of people that agree and hold our similar values and can help us grow. Yeah, and I think I've talked about this too, is that like, yeah, tribes are like really good if you know that you're part of the tribe and like your position in it and also know that it's not the answer. Because I think with tribalism, you also get a lot of people that blindly follow 
I guess the herd, and then they don't think for themselves eventually. Which is which is a problem. Like if you get stuck in it, but like you have no other option. If your only option is the tribe, it's a good option. But what happens if like that blows up in your face? Like you're fucked. Well, and that's I think what happens, right? Part of and, and 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 what if what like you're a powerlifter, right? What happened when you're a powerlifter and that's your identity and that's your tribe, and then you get hurt and you can't powerlift anymore. Or you realize you who are you? Or, exactly. Or like the same thing with veganism. Like let's just say like there's people that switch over to carnivore or veganism. Like yeah, it's my fucking thing, and like they get sick or whatever because like they're micronutrient deficient or whatever. Like it's just like then what? So I think it's 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 a good advice not to blindly follow your chart. Just be aware of like kind of what's going on. I think there's different kinds of communities. And yeah. Obviously, the, the communities like dietary ideologies as tribes. I think can be pretty dangerous in terms of, again, the keto, the vegan, that sort of stuff. Um, for the reasons you guys said, I think what we're looking for are less obvious types of tribes and just communities of supportive people. I think when your <clears throat> nutritional ideology becomes your hashtag thing in your Instagram bio, I think that's a red flag for trouble. Whereas if you just simply seek out a group of like-minded people who are supportive, like you said, I think that's the answer. Uh, I think CrossFit can kind of be a good example of both. It can be one or the other where mm -hmm. it's a great Absolutely. communities of people who will push you. They're getting sheep. But then I think there are people also who become really indoctrinated with the idea of being quote a CrossFit. And like you said, and I, I don't necessarily jump on the bandwagon of like shitting on CrossFit for being more injurious than anything else. I, I think when we say that, we forget that powerlifters get hurt almost across the board all the fucking time. Bodybuilders deal with injuries constantly. Whatever sport someone's talking Jesus Christ, hockey players. talking about hockey earlier. How many hockey players are hurt on a constant basis? Like, I, don't I do jujitsu. Yeah. It's like a 100% injury rate. And, and, <laughs> what I, I think it's a little unfair to single up CrossFit as being worse than everything else. If you do something to a high level and you're passionate about it and you love it, I mean, you inherently accept some injury risk. But CrossFit as a blind indoctrination, if you don't have a strong sense of your own, I think here's the underlying thing it's a strong sense of your own self. If you don't have a strong sense of your own identity and you're just looking for something to take on as part of your identity, then I think that's where it's bad. I think if you have a stronger sense of your own self and you yeah. seek out a community of like-minded, stronger people, then I think it, it's I think, a win. I think that's the best I think you need, like, And like simply, you need to consciously choose your actions a lot of times. And like with these tribes, people end up unconsciously following the herd and they don't, they don't take responsibility for their own, I guess, so and speak thoughts. And that's what comes back to all the way to the beginning. And we'll always be really careful. We never talk about religion, but it, the same thing comes to a religion. If you, I'll explain. I'll explain it very carefully, and I don't think anyone's going to be offended by this. You if you right. have a strong sense of your own values and morals, and then you incorporate religion or spirituality into your everyday life because it aligns with your own personal values, then I think that's a wonderful thing. You know? uh, I think if you adopt the indoctrination of religion and follow it blindly, uh, but yet you, that's not, not how you interact with the world. I'll give you an example. No. I'll be very careful. Some religions, many of them, are intolerant towards homosexuals, right? And multiple religions, not singling anyone out. But that's inconsistent with the true teachings of those religions. If you are a person who uh, you know, loves thy neighbor, for example, it doesn't matter who they are, and then you decide you're gonna be part of a faith, then, or you grew up in a faith, and then you are 
tolerant and kind to every person around, then wonderful. But if you use the more, like those cherry picked things from a particular holy book of whichever denomination it is to use as a justification for, for bigoted and shitty behavior, then that's the problem. And I really think this, I hope it makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense completely for other stuff. Like you think cherry, it's cherry, cherry picking is bad, basically. Yeah. <laughs> It's do- it's just dogma, and if we if we we adhere to dogma, then we aren't critical thinking, and we're not open to possibilities of growth. And that's the scariest part for me. Well, that when you talk about religion, diet, fucking our chasing the pump. If you get caught up in the dogma and you're not willing to, I guess, expand your thoughts, that's just scary. You can do whatever the fuck you want to do. It's just like, what happens if that thing fails? I always want like a plan A, B, C, and D. Um, so I'm not fucked. I don't. That's just how I approach things. We better make sure that we we have Christian Scott Dixon uh, coming up really, really soon. I think we're actually going to air it in reverse order. So anyone hearing this now is probably already listening to Christian's podcast. Yeah. But uh, we'll we'll see. We'll release them as we do. Now, we do want to tackle one thing really quickly because we've been asking every guest this. You you are doing all these different coaching things. You're writing. You're active on your social media. How do you set aside time for, you know, just you and your personal life? How do you set boundaries? Uh... I don't, I don't, but I, I don't, I don't have strict boundaries because I, this is what I enjoy doing. I, this is my, my free time right now. Speak, I mean, we're all the same. Like us three, it's like preacher of the choir. Like we, we, yeah, I do. I mean, I spend time with my wife and, and go to dinner and stuff, but at the end of the day, I love what I do and I just do it a lot. And, and I, you know, on weekends I chill out a little bit more, but I still am researching and uh, Dean knows Sunday nights I'm cramming to get my shit in for research. So I'm messaging him going, all right, what do you think about this? um but yeah it's it's you know i, I love what i do that, that's been a common answer too like it, it, it's kind of like with the books we're kind of getting common stuff which is i think anyone listening can start to pick apart is like a lot of these people that are performing at these levels they're kind of not they're not in the same tribe but like things are lining up very similar which is kind of cool because we didn't expect yeah. that so to speak i i think it boils down to i've said this sort of thing before times finding a career that you don't need to get off the clock from, or you need a vacation from. And I know not everybody has that luxury. I guess that, you, know, yeah. you, you know, you get a pipe fitter who, you know, puts in an honest hard day's work, takes, takes pride and then comes home and, okay, I turn that aspect of my life off. I get that. <laughs> but we're really lucky to get to do what we do. So for, you know, these, these coaches who are up and coming or working hard or trying to break through with a brand, I think the message here is it's actually really okay to live your work. I think it is really important to, learn how to step outside in places that have a relationship or enjoy some shit that isn't like work and not always be stressed out about it. But at the same time, I think if you want to be successful long-term, you know, it, you, there is no work-life balance. A number of our guests have said this, like there is no work-life balance with, with our career, especially the successful mm-hmm. end of it. Uh, we love it. it. My work is absolutely my life. It's one of the most fulfilling things. And, and yeah, over the years, it has definitely been, it has interfered with, you know, personal relationships at times. And, and that's sort of been a, a clumsy thing to navigate. But at the same time, like it is one of the things that makes me happiest is all the stuff that's going on in my career. So I like that answer. Yeah. Easy answer. Where do people find you? I know you got a new website, but like where, where can people consume your content the most? Instagram, Jeb Stewart Johnston, um, Facebook, same thing. Um, but yeah, food on the mind is my, uh, www.foodonthemind.com is my website. Uh, sign up for my email list on there and you get everything delivered to your email box every morning uh and it's their short uh slight emails nothing overwhelming and that's that cool like thanks for coming on we want to get you back just simply because your ideas are some of the best out there and 
Uh, again, like I alluded to, we have people in our industry who are quote, more well-known names in the greater fitness, uh, certainly in the fitness industry, but we've been keeping putting on guests who are our friends who we know are quality human beings. We're doing great things and we want more and more of our audience to pay attention to what you're doing, right? Just as, yeah. as along with paying attention to, well, we had Sohi Lee on recently or Jill Coleman or. You're not as famous as Sohi Lee or Jill Coleman. No, like, no, never, probably won't ever be. be. Never be. No, <laughs> no. Yeah, uh, Dean mentioned Mark Fisher earlier, right? Like these are some great people who've earned it too. But at the same time, what they were where you are right now in terms of your notoriety, once upon a time. So who's to say that you know yeah, two yeah. to four years from now you're not you don't have one hundred and fifty thousand followers on your Instagram yeah. because you did such a fucking you good job. You open up the Ninja Castle Jeb and unicorns. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, Mark's got that cor- that corner, Mark and Michael, but uh. No, yeah, I, I think there's a sea change coming. I think you guys are going to see a lot of these, uh, you know, being, being, you know, I talk about my roller coaster analogy. It's, uh, I feel we're at the top of the this this big drop, and we're going to see, um, we're going to see, we're going to see a lot of our friends really do some awesome stuff. Cool. Thanks for taking the time to come. All right, Chris and everybody. Thanks. Thanks. For we appreciate your patronage. Shut up and sit down.